And that's what Jesus is saying. Don't resist an evil man. God is going to deal with him. God is going to do what is necessary. Don't get in the way, either evil for evil or bringing your own revenge. Leave room for the wrath of God. God's wrath alone is righteous. It alone is worthy of the name wrath. And it certainly does not mean hoping and praying for God to punish our enemies. We don't have the wisdom or power to exercise this wrath possible or, or properly. Instead, we long that others would come to Christ. Proverbs 24 deals with this. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Hello and welcome again to Grace Maryville Weekly, which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of a sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Reiser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King, which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church to equip the saints for the work of ministry and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text. The whole issue of Matthew 18 speaks to that. If your brother sins, go. Show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. If he does not listen to you, take one or two or more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Set him outside of the church. 1 Timothy 5.20, those who continue in sin. This is actually speaking of leadership, eldership in the church. Those who continue in sin, rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest will be fearful of sinning. So certainly... Jesus is not teaching that you never resist evil people at all, that you overlook evil, you pretend it doesn't exist, and then you just let it continue to go on. When the church, John MacArthur says, when the church stopped preaching God's righteousness, justice, and eternal punishment of the lost, it stopped preaching the fullness of the gospel. Both society and the church have suffered greatly for it. When the church stopped holding its own members accountable to God's standards and stopped disciplining its own ranks, a great deal of its moral influence on society was sacrificed. One of the legacies of theological liberalism, which grabs Jesus' statement here and says, look, we don't deal with evil anymore. Everyone is generally good, so we don't have to deal with it in these harsh ways. This is what Jesus was saying. And they're they're wrong. He says one of the uh, legacies of this kind of theological liberalism is civil as well as religious lawlessness. And it's certainly true that the government must continue to maintain uh, the sword against evil. 1 Peter 2.13, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or governors as sent by him, what? For the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Certainly the government and governmental systems are not simply to overlook an evil man and not resist him in any way. Otherwise he harms, kills, destroys people. So for the sake of God's righteousness, as well as for the sake of human justice, believers are obligated not only to uphold the law themselves, but to insist that others do so as well. To report crime is an act of compassion, righteousness, and godly obedience, as well as an act of civil responsibility. To belittle, excuse, or hide the wrongdoing of others is not an act of love, but an act of wickedness, because it undermines civil justice and divine righteousness. Therefore, when Jesus says, do not resist an evil person, 
He's not saying in any and all circumstances, evil is simply to be allowed to rule. So what, what, what is he saying? The negative side, what isn't he saying? Right? I think if we, as we look into the New Testament, we find really uh, an exact definition of what Jesus means here. And I think we find it most clearly. We find it in several places, most clearly in Romans chapter 12. So go ahead and turn there. When it comes to this idea of not resisting an evil man, and we've already seen it doesn't mean civil justice. It doesn't mean that justice in the church is to be undone by allowing evil to run rampant. Or even when others are being harmed, that we would simply turn aside and say, well, that's okay because Jesus said you can't resist an evil person. I think this is fleshed out for us by Paul in Romans chapter 12, as he really speaks of how we apply the truth of the gospel to our own personal situations, and particularly to personal insult or injury. Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There's the commentary. How are we going to deal with it when someone comes against us personally, when someone causes us hurt, harm, or demands things from us? Give me money, lend me, lend to me. Give personal sacrifice for me and make provision. How will we respond? So I'd like to flesh these things out this morning, really along the lines of, of Romans chapter 12, because again, I think they speak both to the negative side, which is don't resist the evil person, and to the positive side, which is if you're struck on the cheek, turn the other. There are two aspects here. First, I think clearly, and I don't think these are, are on your outline, I think you have to fill them in, uh, this first one might be, don't return evil for evil. That's the most fundamental response to an evil person. You are never allowed to do evil in response. And you're sitting here going, of course, of course we're not allowed to do evil in response. Well, how about children, the last time your parents told you that you something that you didn't like and you responded back with rebellious, what they call, backtalk? That was evil. Now, your parents didn't even do it. They weren't evil people in doing what they did. But um, you responded with evil back to righteousness. How quick are we? Let's use this illustration, brothers and sisters. When was the last time your younger brother or sister, or maybe your older brother or sister, did something to offend you? They took your things. They harmed you. They went into your room. Maybe they even hurt you physically. Not that that ever happens in families. Certainly not in mine. How did you respond? Did you flare back? Did you hit them back? He hit me back first, right? I didn't hit. It, it wasn't my fault. I, you scream back at them, uh, whatever it might be. Adults just get a little bit better at this. Again, as I mentioned, sarcasm is our primary tool. You get me, I'll get you back subtly and get, oh, it's even sweeter if it's more subtle. You harm me, I'll harm you. Marriages, this happens all the time. You throw out a barb to me and I'll get you back. I'll mention it. It might be, it might be two weeks down the road where I bring that thing up that you said and zing, I gotcha. Yes, that's evil. Evil in response to evil. Now it gets a lot more obvious. People are harmed or killed or Lamech with his 77 times. But you guys, it is, well, although we know we're not supposed to respond this way, what is Jesus saying? He's exposing our hearts. When evil is done against us, we, I mean, even, it's, it's, it's evil, we want to respond with evil. It's our heart. And we're going to have to be careful not to resist evil people ever in that way. First Peter 3.8, really this is speaking, uh, the primary context is marriage. First Peter 3a. To sum up, 
all of you be harmonious, sympathetic. He's broadening it out to the church, but all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Wouldn't that be great if our marriages looked like that? Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult. How practical. Insult for insult. But giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. We're not to return evil. We're actually to return a blessing when it comes to personal affront, even when someone has actually been evil to us. So often they're not, and we still respond evilly. But even if they are, we may never respond with a sinful retort, a sinful thought, a sinful action, the manipulation and sarcasm and insults and, and, and bringing up things from the past and cutdowns, whatever it might be. All the way up to physical harm that is sometimes done in marriages, in families, in churches, in society, to the, the, to the evil of a physically harmful response in return, and, and, and all, all through the gamut of that. We are not to return evil for evil. Well, how is that, how is that even possible? It is only possible if we have true love, if we have a desire to see others looking more like Jesus, regardless of, of, of the sacrifice that we make to do that. Now, we're going to talk about love in several, it, it was probably going to be three or four weeks before we get there. Jesus is going to address this directly. But 1 Corinthians 13, 4 says it this way, Love is patient, love is kind and is not jealous, love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, it is not provoked. So you're not going to give an evil response if you're not even provoked, if you're not moved to anger, moved to evil yourself. Love is not provoked because it takes the difficult things against it and simply says, how can I use this situation to help this person and myself look more like Jesus? Instead of how can I get back at this person? How can I redress the wrong? How can I, how can I get some kind of pleasure out of harming them in return? Love doesn't even think that way. Instead, it's not, it's not even provoked. It doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. Because oftentimes it's not only the insult that we receive, it's that particular one. We add that to all the other ones we've received, all the other affronts against us, all the other things that that person has done to us, and our response is commensurate to that. Imagine if every response, sinful response, you heard from your spouse or you heard from your children, it was as though that was the first time you'd ever heard anything sinful from them. You couldn't even remember the things that had happened in the past, the other things that they said against you that were harmful. You couldn't remember, so there's nothing to pile it on. And when there's nothing to pile it on, the ease of a loving response is tremendously heightened. And so when you keep no account of wrongs, it is so much easier not to respond with evil. You see how this starts to put together? You're just going to be able to slap this on, okay, well, I shouldn't, I shouldn't respond to evil with evil. I'll go home and try to do that and not forgive and not actually love, and, and refuse to be provoked because your own ego and your, your own personal space and your own rights to have certain comforts and, and things you want to hear from others because they don't even factor into the conversation. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't resist an evil person. Don't return evil for evil. Don't be like them because you love them. I mean, this is an absolutely radical standard. Impossible for unbelievers to live out. Possible for every believer. And this is the, this, by the way, this is the most basic. We're starting from the easiest in one sense. Don't, just don't be evil. And we're going to work our way out to much more difficult. And as Jesus does, turn the other cheek. Not just don't resist, 
but actually, as we will see, do positive good towards, stay in relationship with, pursue reconciliation at every level and pursue the truth of the gospel poured into the lives of people regardless of how harmful they have been to you. It's a radical standard. The Pharisees knew nothing of it. Our righteousness must must surpass those by the measure that the Spirit of God allows in our hearts. You're going to have to take your first inclinations captive if you're not going to return evil for evil. Because your first inclination is when yelled at is to yell in return. When manipulated to manipulate in return. When hurt to hurt in return. When controlled to control in return. We must truly understand that every evil response is used by Satan to diminish God's glory, damage the church, harm your relationships, and diminish effective evangelism. Now, in our text, if we're looking, if you're in Romans 17, Notice that it goes on to say, don't pay back evil for evil to anyone, but respect what is right in the sight of all men. Notice how he broadens it out. It's not just other believers that if they're evil to you, you don't return evil. It's also unbelievers. And in fact, a more broader understanding of this principle is respond to others in the ways that even they would know on the basis of their own consciences that are right. Even unbelievers know that when you respond evilly back to them or angrily to them or unjustly to them, even they understand that that's wrong even though they probably baited you with an unjust or evil response to get there. And yet you, when you respond evilly, they know. And the, and, the, and the truth of the gospel and the nature and love and work of Christ take a hit. Guys, you, at the very basic, you should be doing that which even the world understands is right. You should never be undertaking actions which even an unbeliever would look at that and say, I can't believe, I can't believe you're doing that. And consider the nature of the church and how unbelievers are watching your own behavior to one another in your marriages, in in your parenting, in your personal relationships, in your friendships, in your relationships to those in businesses and, and all the ways that that stretches out into the unbelieving world. They're watching you every second. And when you respond evilly, when you, when you inappropriately, as it were, resist an evil man, they're judging you. Even though they're the ones that are being evil against you. And God is holding you accountable for that. We are to respect what is right even in the sight of all men. Every person is our judge. Not only God, but every single person in the world stands as your judge. That is that you are to do what is right to them. And they have a general understanding because God has built it into their conscience of what is right and good, even when they're not doing it. Now this is particularly important because unbelievers have a conscience to which our deeds appeal. Did you know that? That's what the basis of this is on. When even an unbeliever knows what is right, when he sees you doing it, it matches up to, to your statement of who Christ is, and then that person is drawn towards the things of the Lord. You're refusing to respond with evil to evil is one of the primary means that God uses to evangelize the nations. 1 Peter 2.12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, see those Christians... They're always responding back sinfully. They can't even, can't even be nice and kind to one another, much less to me. Yeah, I, che- I know I cheated them in that business practice, but he came back and he cheated me. I know I yelled at him on the phone, but then he came back and he yelled at me on the phone. Unbeliever, or believer shouldn't do that. See, they're going to hold you to a standard that they don't live to, and you tend to lower yourself to their standard because of it. You may not. Otherwise, they'll 
be able to slander you as evildoers. But the passage here says when they try the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, not as you tell them, look how good I am, we're Christians, look at all these good things we do. No, your good deeds, as they observe them, what? Glorify God in the day of visitation. Either when the gospel is brought to them and the Spirit of God works in their heart, he will use the means of your obedience in not returning evil for evil to help bring them to Christ, or when Jesus descends upon this planet and they have not repented or responded, but they see the truth and beauty of who he is, they will match that up to the Christians they saw and they will say, yeah, they showed me. They told me. They lived this Jesus that, that is coming that I now see. They lived that before me and they will glorify Jesus. One way or the other. You may not return evil for evil. That is, you may not resist an evil man. You see it. That's step one. You may not resist him in that way. But it goes beyond that. The second one found in our text in Romans now, as we try to flesh this out, is never take your own revenge. Never take your own revenge. This is a different thought. I never pack evil for evil, respect what is right in the sight of all men. For now, we'll step past verse 18, which is, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men, because I think that relates to turning the other cheek, and that's not going to be until next week. All right, we'll step past that and get to number 19, or verse 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. This is a second step. See, the first is not evil. I I'm not going to commit evil back to you. But the second part here is I'm not even going to try to exact a just penalty from you. That's the idea of vengeance here. It doesn't appear that what is, because it's already contrasted with an evil response, it doesn't appear that there's, this is a wrong response or trying to do something sinful to, to make justice, but that you are trying to bring your own justice, much as David was seeking to do with Nabal. And because it's also contrasted here with God's vengeance, God is able to bring just, right vengeance. Even our attempts at righteous acts or, or trying to bring people into, uh, to bring them to justice as it were, personally, it's always tainted with our own sin. So he says, never take your own revenge. That is in a personal affront or insult, you are not trying to work all the situations so that you receive the satisfaction of a just response. I will get righteousness and justice for myself. I mean, think of Joseph and if he had sought to do that with his brothers. So they show up, and he is the second in command to Pharaoh. Perfect chance. I, I, would he have been just, as it were? Would he have been right to exact from them a penalty for throwing him into a pit, essentially seeking to kill him and to profit from it, other than just kill him? I mean, selling him into slavery was a death knell. So they were trying to kill him and make money, and left him there, never checking, never, never doing anything to see what had happened. And here he is, the most powerful, essentially, man in the land. And what does he do? He, by the way, works towards their repentance. It's a beautiful picture. Does so and then says what? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And therefore, I have lived towards you, implied. I have done to you what is good. I did not exact my own revenge. We must not only do evil for evil. We must not try to get our own justice. That is, we will bring about the, the, the payment for the sin that we consider to be done against us. Why? Because we have to trust God's justice. I mean, our text is clear. Never take your own revenge. Why? Right? But leave room for the wrath of God. Let God take his vengeance. Let him bring it at the right time. Let him be, do a, bring a righteous 
penalty as a result of sin that is done. But be careful. Why leave room? One, because you can't ever do it properly. Almost always you're going to be tainted as you try to bring about that revenge, set up that situation in which now you feel better because of what was done to you. You're almost always going to sin, and God is never going to sin. But hear me carefully. If you step in the way of the, of the wrath of God, of the vengeance of God, then what you might do is, is predispose or, or really be a means by which that person turns away from God altogether. And then the vengeance of God will fall upon him in an eternal way unto eternal hell because of your bad example. Now, I understand that God is sovereign. I know he saves whom he desires to save. I also know he does it, he, the means he uses is your proclamation of the gospel and your example. And when you exact your own revenge and you don't leave for God, instead what you do is you pave a way for people to grow angry and frustrated. And then what happens? The wrath of God falls upon them in an eternal way. Do you really want that? If you would leave room, if you would wait for God in his right time to bring the truth to bear, then what would happen is, and your prayer is, that if someone sins against you, that ultimately they would repent and not simply respond to you. What a teeny, in one sense, pitiable response that they would somehow respond to you but instead that they would respond to holy God and that he would pour out his wrath upon Christ instead of them and they would be eternally saved. Leave room for the wrath of God because maybe you're stepping in the way of it would mean that his ultimate wrath will fall upon them as opposed to the, to the disciplines and judgments he might bring that would draw them to Christ so that the punishment would fall on Christ and not them. That's why you don't respond to an evil man like that because you want him to come to Christ. And you want him ultimately not to have to pay the penalty for his own sin. So you had best not exact that penalty too soon. That's the idea. God will do what is right. If they don't respond to him, his eternal punishment will be brought. But do you really want that? Careful now. Careful. On those who have harmed you. On a society that seems to be stealing from you. On those who you would consider to be committing those major sins of homosexuality and, and, and they're, they're harming whole, whole countries and governments and people, uh, be careful. If you don't too go say, well, I, I would never want the wrath of God to fall on someone in your speech, in your mind, in your heart. You're leaving room for the wrath of God, again, so that they might come to Christ and they would not receive that ultimate punishment, but he would draw them to himself apart from your pitiable attempts to try to bring justice yourself. God is much better at it than you. That's the idea. And that's what Jesus is saying. Don't resist an evil man. God is going to deal with him. God is going to do what is necessary. Don't get in the way, either evil for evil or bringing your own revenge. Leave room for the wrath of God. God's wrath alone is righteous. It alone is worthy of the name wrath. And it certainly does not mean hoping and praying for God to punish our enemies. We don't have the wisdom or power to exercise this wrath possible or, or properly. Instead, we long that others would come to Christ. Proverbs 24 deals with this. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. And do not be glad when he stumbles. Ah, oh, see, God is getting him. So that's not what it means when it says leave room for the wrath of God. Can't wait till God punishes him. That would be wonderful. No. I long for, ultimately, God's justice to be done. And if my enemy stumbles or falls, I will not rejoice. Going on in verse 18 of Proverbs 24, or the Lord will see it and be displeased. He will turn his anger away from him. Do not fret because of evildoers or be envious of the wicked. God will have his way. 
Vengeance belongs to the Lord. That's what our scripture says. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And either he will repay it upon the evil man by bringing his own penalty, by causing, requiring that evil man to pay the penalty for the rest of eternity in hell, or in his grace and mercy, he will bring his justice by bringing that man's sin underneath the punishment laid upon Christ as that man repents and believes. And that's what we long for. He properly repays, either with the punishment given to Christ or the punishment upon that person in eternity. He never lets the guilty go unpunished, so you never have to worry about trying to get your own revenge. And remember, we're speaking in the, in the personal arena. We're not undoing justice in nations and justice in the church and justice in government. I've already said that, but be so careful. If you know some, I'll say, well, I'm standing up for justice. And all you are really standing up for is your own personal desire to have the, the satisfaction of your own ego being soothed by causing someone else to, take, to deal with a penalty. 1 Peter 2.21 For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Imagine for a moment if Jesus had resisted an evil person with evil well, he would no longer have been the Son of God. We understand the fact that Jesus ultimately could not sin, but had he, it would have been done from the start. But think for a moment if Jesus had chose to enact his own revenge. There you have the, the uh, in, in, the, in the garden, you have the, the religious leaders bringing their, their cronies along and Judas with the, with, the, with the kiss of betrayal and then the army that is there. And what did Jesus say? If I wanted to, I could bring a, a legion of angels, legions of angels, and it would have been right said, I will not do it. I'm leaving room for the wrath of God. And in fact, he was leaving room for the wrath of God to be poured out upon himself. We need to do the same. If we're going to deal properly with evil people, we must learn not to desire our own justice, not to do evil in return, but instead, as we will see next week, we have to learn how to turn the other cheek. And we will see what that means. We will try to flesh it out. What does it actually mean to then when I'm slapped on one cheek to turn the other. But it starts with this hard attitude here. You will never turn the other cheek. You will never properly understand what that means if you continue to try to get your own revenge, if you are constantly seeking to cause others to make payment to you for the evils that they commit against you, because that will be ongoing, both in society, in your family, in the church. First hard attitude is this. Do not resist an evil person. No evil for evil. Respect what is right in the sight of all men and never take your own revenge. Instead, leave room for the wrath of God. Pray for, seek for the salvation of all who would do evil against you and seek to, to demonstrate and show to them the means by which they might overcome that evil with good. So a couple questions for you as we finish. How easily activated is your sense of personal justice and how do you respond? How sensitive are you to personal affronts done against you? What does love say? It's not provoked, and it doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. If you're extremely sensitive to these things, you're lacking in love. Be it with your spouse, with your children, with your parents, with your siblings, with others in this church that you are wrestling with at whatever level of relationship you might be, with your extended family members who have been harmful to you, 
with those out in society and businesses and other places that have harmed you, how quickly do you flare back when you are harmed? It's already demonstrating a lack of what Jesus has said, and you're going to struggle. Are you quick to pursue your rights in a given situation, or are you quick to give them away for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of love? How quick are you? Is that your first response? For the believer, it becomes his natural response. For the unbeliever, it's never his response. And then lastly, have you learned to deny your first inclination to respond in an ungodly fashion to evil done to you? Or do you still flare back in some form of anger, be it muted or expressive? Have you learned to understand, to identify, and to put to death your first inclination of ungodly response? That's where you're going to have to start this week. So that you might not resist an evil man, and next week we will look to see what it means to turn our other cheek when that evil man has harmed us. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the power of your teaching. Thank you for your clear, authoritative statements that assault our hearts. And I pray that in all that is said this morning, that nothing would in any way have gotten in the way of the power of your statement, that we are not to resist an evil man. That our first inclination should be, must be always to love in response, to long for their salvation, to set aside our own rights and our own desires and our own inklings and inclinations towards personal justice to instead leave room for you to do your work and to pray and to work in such a way that love would be poured back in the direction of evil. And I pray that be true with, from spouse to spouse, from parents to children, children back to their parents, siblings to one another. Lord, I pray that that would be true in our church as there are wrestles and struggles and relationship. It would be quick to pour back good even when evil has been done. I want to pray that that would be true out to an evil society that constantly seeking to harm us, that love would be returned, that grace and, and, and gentleness and truthfulness would be poured back when there is injustice done. And as a result of that, that an unbelieving world and a wrestling church would glorify God in the day of visitation. In your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the Sola and Essentials conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online and we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. 
Until then, remember that Jesus is the King, and the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.